hey, parenting is complex. It doesn't all look the same. So to those of you who have taken on that role of being a mom, happy Mother's Day, and thank you for all that you do. Today, um, in today's uh, continuing part of our series, uh, we are going to, hopefully, I am going to help you to maybe consider some ways in which you can parent better, um, and in so doing, tackle somewhat of an abstract topic um, to kind of make you aware of it and to work on it, and I think if you do, it could really help you, because as some of you parents know, parenting in general can feel like uh, a massive DIY project, a do-it-yourself project. It's big, it's overwhelming, and not that you aren't great at it, but I certainly think we could be sometimes a little better. And for those of you who are not parents, um, today I think could give you an opportunity and some skills, in fact, uh, to learn to not only parent children better when you get to that point in your life, but um, more importantly, to even work with the adults that you work with today, because, and I don't say this to be mean, I, I really mean it, I think there are some similarities, at least in my experience, of parenting my two-year-old, as well as working with adults. There's some principles that carry over, and some of you know that sometimes adults, we can act like two-year-olds. And so the principle that we're going to talk about today, the topic we're going to cover today, is um, present in a fairly well-known story in Jesus's ministry. Uh, and it's a three-verse, very brief story, but it's fairly well-known. And it's a really rich passage, lots happening. And its uh, focus is, and at least we're going to focus on, the part of it that has to do with the relationships between adults and kids and primarily parents and kids. And so here's how this little story goes. Then the people, and right here, we got to stop because the people more than likely were in fact the moms. And I don't just say that because it was Mother's Day. Uh, I say that because culturally in those days, it would have been very unlikely for dads to bring their kids to get blessed by a rabbi or by from, from Jesus. And also the second reason being that in those of you who are fluent in ancient Greek will really appreciate that. And if you have no idea what I mean by that, the Old or the New Testament, um, this right here is a translation. Um, every Bible that you read in English is a translation. That's why we have uh, different translations. This one's the NIV. But long story short, this is a translation of ancient Greek. And in this particular section of Greek, there's an absence of anything uh, masculine. In other words, the verbiage that was chosen here left out um, any sense that there was a masculine presence with these people that brought these children. Therefore, it is fair to assume that it was the moms, it was the women in these children's lives that were bringing the children to Jesus. And they brought him, the little children, to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, to pray for them. Because these parents, these moms had heard the stories of Jesus. They had heard that these were hands that do amazing things that his hands could even heal people. And in a uh, season uh, or in a point in history in humanity, when children did not live often very long and barely made it to adulthood, this was an intentional decision on the parts of these mothers um, to love on their children, to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, they brought the children to Jesus, but 
what happens next is the disciples kind of get in the way. Jesus' closest followers, the 12, you may have heard of them, kind of get in the way, and this is how they do that. But the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the moms maybe, rebuked the kids at the very least. And scholars kind of speculate on the reason, um, but there's uh, some uh, ideas that maybe Jesus at this point in the day was a little tired, or maybe there was a Jewish holiday possibly happening at this time, and so that wasn't necessarily appropriate. But ultimately, the point being, regardless of the reason, in the disciples' eyes, the kids weren't important enough to see Jesus. They weren't valuable enough to see Jesus. And maybe that's something that you've experienced in your own life, that when you were younger, you were maybe looked down on. You were questioned. And you didn't feel too good about that, did you? I know for me, and I've shared this before, like part of the reason why I grew out some facial hair is because in, when you're a pastor in your 20s, people don't assume that you're in charge. They assume you're like the youth, youth pastor. They assume you don't know a whole lot. And so to some degree, part of the reason I grew out the hair was so that way I would come across as a little bit more mature than I was because I would often get that question of what my role was. And you could see it in people's eyes of whether they thought I had the um, influence and the know-how to do what I was doing. Also, just in general, because I just wanted to be more rugged of a man and my wife really likes it kidding. I really don't know if she likes it or not. That just made that up, but hopefully, right? Okay. So anyways, when have you felt that though? When have you felt that fact of I'm not good enough because of there's something out of my control and I've therefore been devalued. Therefore, my influence has been cut. Therefore, the control even over my own life has been limited because of something out of my control. It's painful and it's hard. And in the midst of that moment for these children, Jesus says this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now I could talk at length about the value that Jesus put on the the heart of a child and the faith of a child, but I want to, for today's sake, focus on the parenting takeaways, the relationship with children takeaways. I want you to think about that story and ask yourself, in the midst of that story, who had control? As you heard that story go on, who had control as that story went on? Obviously, the parents, they had some control. The, the moms uh, who brought the kids had some control. The disciples who rebuked the moms and the kids Jesus, who had the kids come to him regardless, the people who didn't have control in that story were the kids. Now, I don't think anyone in that story had bad intentions. I think they were all well-meaning, but, but the kids ultimately had control as if they weren't capable of making their own decisions in their lives. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you, even at two years old, my two-year-old is very capable of taking control of a situation. And I would just suggest to you that, that I think there's a tendency among parents when it comes to parenting, and honestly for all of us, just life in general, that we could do a better job of managing the control we exhibit or the lack of control we exhibit, that we could ask ourselves more the question, who has control? And is it the right balance? 
Now, I realize for some of you parents, you're like, Taylor, I wonder who has control like every day and not in a good way. It's like, am I in control or are my kids in control? Because it's always a, a border of like keeping them from chaos and keeping them alive. And, and I'm not sure if they're going to make it, honestly, as crazy as our life sometimes is. I get that this is a complex topic. I, I said that from the beginning, but I think it is worth jumping in to understand, is there a way, is there a way in which we could have a better balance between over-controlling situations and under-controlling situation? Because I would say most of us tend to be on extreme ends. We either over-control way more than we need to, or we do the opposite and we under-control a situation. We, we risk over-controlling and hindering through our over-control, uh, like the disciples did, these kids being blessed by Jesus from something that's really important, that really matters. We can hinder our children because we over control, but at the same time, we can also hinder them by under controlling that, that moms or, or parents who don't bring their kids to Jesus or had those parents that mo- those moms not bring up, brought their kids to Jesus, their kids would have missed out on this amazing opportunity had they under controlled. And if you're thinking, well, that's a parenting thing and not applicable to adults, I would ask you to rethink that because have you ever felt micromanaged that someone was almost overly controlling of your life? How did you feel? Or have you ever felt in your life where you were without a little bit of direction, especially maybe when you were new on a job or trying to figure something out for the first time and someone wanted you to get something done, but they didn't give you a lot of direction on how to do it. That's also frustrating, isn't it? This happens in adult relationships too. And so I want to specifically spend the next few minutes talking about over control and then we'll jump into under control. But over control, this moment uh, of the disciples where they tended to over control the situation. How do you know or how do you like it when someone takes control from you? When someone takes control from you. For example, you're in the middle of a project. You're in the middle of having a good time. You're looking forward to something and then that rug almost gets pulled out from right underneath you and someone does it without even asking and it's frustrating, isn't it? I mean, how did that make you feel? How do you think it makes other people feel if you're the one pulling the rug out? You feel upset. You feel threatened, in fact, right? You feel less than, don't you? Now, you can respond to that by over, over controlling the situation, essentially escalating. Like if you're going to do that, then I'm going to do this and I'm going to go bigger and I'm going to try to gain that control back. And in so doing, I'm going to escalate the situation. You can do that, but I don't think, and I think you know this, that is not the healthiest path, path forward. Now, I realize for some of you, you could say, well, but Taylor, those times in which I've had to pull the rug out, you know, they were working on a project in a bad way or whatever they were doing were not good. And so I just, I had to step in. I had to stop my kids from doing this. I had to pull the rug out because there needed to be a change. And I understand there are moments in which we do have to pull the rug that we have to over sometimes control. Um, It happens, but I'm just going to ask you and invite you to consider how that feels for others. Because if we can understand how that feels, then I think we have a good chance of setting ourselves up for success, especially as we get to the main point of today, which we'll get to in just like two slides. 
But also, I want to highlight that when you over-control, it not only can hurt people, but it has this amazing ability to remove consequences. Now, in the book, Parenting with Love and Logic, um, which is very helpful on this topic, they talk a lot about hovering or micromanaging parents. And maybe you've had a parent who's done this, hovered over you, or a boss who's hovered over you, or a coworker who's hovered over you. The approach of over-control, one, it is a lot of work to do that, a lot of honestly wasted, unnecessary, often energy. But two, you are, by over-controlling, preventing someone else from learning through consequence. You're trying to prevent your four-year-old from doing something by explaining thoroughly the consequences of their actions. Sometimes, if it is safe to do so, maybe letting them learn from experiencing the consequences is the best teacher, especially when there is a loving, watchful parent to walk that child through that experience. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting let your kids walk out in the middle of the road to experience what getting hit by a car feels like. Not at all suggesting that, but there are small ways in which we can give control to those around us. We can share control with those around us and it allows them to experience life as it is, especially as a child grows into adulthood. Because as you and I know as adults, there are very few times in which people generally step in to entirely keep us from experiencing the consequences of our decisions, right? Adulthood has more consequences. Let those consequences teach. Let those consequences teach. Let them teach. Now, back in March, in the good old days, pre-coronavirus, and, or at least pre-lockdown, okay? In the good old days, um, my daughter, Elia, wanted to go on a walk. She loves walks, and she wanted to bring her stroller along. In fact, she wanted to be in the stroller and go, and I told her, because it was a little cold outside, that she needed to put on socks and a bigger jacket. She was not going to put on socks and a bigger jacket, And so what she does next is very two-year-old-ish. She grabs a stroller and just starts pushing it down the driveway onto the gravel road outside her house and then down the gravel road. And in this moment, parents, I am tempted to over-control and remove the consequences of going out without socks and a coat. And what would have happened? Screaming, kicking, upset child. And so I step back and I ask myself, who needed to be in control in this moment? Where did the control need to be put out there? How how should I control this situation? And I decided, well, is her going out in this chilly weather going to compromise her health and well-being? Probably not. She's going to get cold. But that's about the extent of it. And so I told her, Elia, as she's walking away from me, Elia, that's fine, but you'll need to bring the stroller back home when you're done. And so I followed her and here's what this looked like because I recorded it because I thought this was very entertaining. Here she is. It's very adorable when you're watching it from here, but in the moment, parents, you know this, it's a little frustrating, but here she is walking down the gravel road, pushing the stroller because I wouldn't push her in it. And she's wearing a, uh, a sweatshirt and her shoes are, have lots of holes in them. They're really made for summer and she has no socks on. Okay. So that's the situation. Now she finally got to the end at the bottom because she's kind of going downhill and she decided it was time to go back home. And so she turned her stroller around and started to go back home because I said you needed to bring the stroller back home. 
But as you can imagine, pushing the stroller up a gravel hill the other way as a two-year-old is a little challenging. And she had a hard time. And so you know what she did? She got, walked around the stroller, got in the stroller, sat down, looked at me and said, Daddy, help. And she pointed up at the stroller. What I said next was, honey, I said, you can bring the stroller down, but you have to bring it home. Eventually, she stood up realizing I wasn't going to push her back, <laughs> all comfortable like a queen. And she got out, she started to push, and she had trouble. And I offered to help, but I let her experience the consequences. You're like, that's so mean for a two-year-old. I'm just telling you, she was smiling, gigging the next few minutes. And I'm, I'm just saying from that point forward, it has helped a ton. When I say, hey, we're going to go outside and it's cold. It is a lot easier for her to say, okay, I will put socks on. Okay, I will put uh, a coat on. Now, is it once and done? No, it's going to be a repetition. But she learned through that experience that you're just not going to get daddy to push her up the hill. And she knew, she knew. I mean, you could, you could see it processing in her eyes. She knew exactly what she was doing the whole time. Because here's what I hope you will remember is love shares control. Love shares control. Now you need to adjust the amount of control by age and environment and the consequences that come from it. And that realizing sometimes, yes, you are going to have to put your foot down, but love ultimately tries to share control. To ask ourselves, do I, do I need to be in control in this situation? Do I need to have this much control in this situation? Were the moms in the story wrong for, for controlling and bringing their kids to Jesus? No, probably not. Could the disciples though have shared control? Probably. What if they would have instead, then instead of rebuking, turned to Jesus and said, hey Jesus, there's some kids here. What do you think about that? What would have Jesus heard? Jesus would have heard, hey, my disciples trust me to make good decisions. They had shared control with me. Now, real quick, we need to talk about the opposite. The opposite is when we under control a situation, when we're too absent, when we believe not being engaged, not um, being uh, involved, not providing structure is a better way to go that we're just absent when we should be more engaged. And my friends, it is easier. It is easier in the short term to lessen control, but it will be more costly in the long for your kids and likely for you too. An example of this is a story that involves a king. His king, uh, name was David. He was a very well-known king in uh, Jewish history in the Old Testament. Uh, and God thought well of him. And he brought the nation of Israel uh, a, pro a lot of uh, wealth and, and they prospered. And he had many sons, many children. And one of those sons was a guy named Absalom. And, um, and uh, despite being, uh, you know, a pretty well-to-do king, David made a lot of mistakes. And, and one of those mistakes was his lack of engagement with Absalom. And his lack of engagement, his lack of control in Absalom's life, presence in Absalom's life, and as well as his kingdom. Back in those days, it was the king's responsibility to sit as judge between what is right and wrong. 
Because without someone, you know, kind of passing final say, uh, a society kind of goes into chaos mode. Because how would you know who's right, who's wrong? How would you settle disputes without someone sitting as judge? And so what would happen is the king would, would sit in every city or a king's representative would sit at every major city right inside the front gates of the city. And then he would um, be able to make uh, and give uh, past judgments on disputes that were happening. And, and notice where they sat. They sat at the most accessible point within the city where the most people were. And there's a good example of this in a place called Tel Dan, or essentially um, an old city, a city built on top of a city, uh, built on top of a city over thousands and thousands of years. Um, and Dan, if you know your Old Testament history, um, was a tribe of um, an Israelite tribe. And so this is the city of Dan. And right inside the gate was this raised platform where these two gentlemen are sitting. And then this has been constructed. Obviously that didn't make it 2000 years or 3000 years uh, of history. And then here's the bench where all of the Kings um, like uh, helpers would sit and then, or the King's representative. And they would sit there right inside the gates and pass judgment. But there was a problem in this particular story. And here's how this story goes in 2 Samuel. He, Absalom, would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading into the city gate. Whenever, any, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, next slide, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but, uh-oh, there is no representative of the king, my father, David, here to hear you. He is absent. He is not in control, and he communicates no love and compassion for his people by being absent. And his kingdom is effectively leaderless. Therefore, if only I were appointed judge in this land, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, make me king. Now, here's my assumption, and maybe you've seen this kind of play out as kids without love and control in their life tend to act out, looking for boundaries that no one has yet to give them. Looking for boundaries that no one has yet to give them, to teach them, to make them feel safe and loved and cared for. Even though they may push against it, what they're trying to push, what they're trying to test ultimately is a parent's love. Absalom is at this point, honestly, well beyond that. He is pushing the boundaries, but for him, the boundaries have gone. The affection is gone. He has no allegiance to his father. So eventually he takes the kingdom from David by influence. And David eventually then has to take the kingdom back. And in the process of taking the kingdom back, his son Absalom is killed. A terrible ending to the story. The point being, contrary to how this sounds, under control will eventually leave you out of control. Under control will eventually leave you out of control because you've abdicated it. You've avoided it. You don't set boundaries. And what your kids hear is you don't care. Kids and adults both will find someone that gives them direction direction and clarity in life if they don't feel like they have it already. Even if it is not a good place to find it, they will find it. If your boss doesn't micromanage you, you may think that's a positive. Hey, I have a boss. He doesn't, she doesn't micromanage me. Until 
that performance review until you sit there and there's no clarity of what you necessarily were supposed to be working on or your boss looks at you and says, oh, I'm glad you got that done, but that's not how I wanted you to do it. And you're sitting there like, well, then you should have communicated that. But your boss isn't the one to effectively communicate and exhibit control. It doesn't, there's a lack of clarity. Or your coworker who's underperforming and you try to talk to your boss about it, but they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to exhibit control and it makes them uncomfortable. But my friends, love, love shares control. It doesn't abdicate control. There is a tension to be managed in control without a doubt. And the amount of control you exhibit as a parent, especially shifts over time, especially as your child age, you pull back and you pull back the control and give more and more and more to them. But we should try to find small ways to share control with those we love. With Elia and picking out clothes, we always give her two options, but they're options we chose. So we still have control in it, but we're inviting her to have some control too. A few days ago, I was um, helping Stephanie's youngest sister uh, do a little academic time because she's not in school right now. And so I had her write a little essay and and I said to her, um, I, I see that you have misspelled some words. And then I was about to mark them on the paper so she would correct them. But then I decided, why don't I take this moment to share control? And I said, how would you like me to identify the words you have misspelled? And she said, well, just tell me. And I realized to myself, had I gone in and just checked off the ones she got wrong, she would have felt less control. We both got what we wanted. She had the opportunity to improve her understanding of spelling, but she also got to exhibit some control in how that actually went about. It takes some work. It takes some creativity, but that is love. It's also love to sit there and say sometimes, hey, I notice some people are getting upset. I notice my child's getting upset. I know an adult in my life is getting upset. Maybe I compromised in some way their feeling of control. And therefore, they don't feel very loved. So could I have shared control differently? Could I have done something differently? Love shares control. God shares control. God shares control because he loves us. God in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty gives us, in other words, sovereignty being he is in ultimate control, but in his control, he gives us control. He shares that control with us. He, he gives us freedom to choose. For example, he doesn't push us into faith. He doesn't bring us harm. He gives us control, freedom of choice in our life. And I realize for some of us, we may sit there and maybe part of our struggle with God in general is it feels like God needs to be more in control, especially these days, pandemic or, or really not. You just hear of some of the things happening in our world and it breaks your heart and you're like, God, come on, step in here. But I just want to ask you to think about a couple of things on that topic. One, did you ever go to your parents, your mom and dad as a kid and say, mom, dad, could you control my life a little bit more? I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of you have never said that to your parents. Why not? Because you didn't want to be controlled. Well, Taylor, why don't then God just, why doesn't God just step in when the bad things happen or the bad people 
are in control? What, why doesn't God at least step in there? Well, then what if you were the person that had done something bad? What if you were the person that God had to step in and control? What if maybe someone you cared about did something wrong? In your past, have you ever done anything wrong? Where is the line that God should step in and control? What's bad enough to qualify for God to step into your life or in the lives of others and exhibit control? I want you to consider that God hasn't left you alone, nor has he left this world alone. He's given us the opportunity to have relationships, friends, family, kids, spouses. He came down to earth to give us an example through Jesus Christ to walk the earth and show us what it looks like to follow him, to live our lives in a way that honors him and honors those around us. He, He started a church, a community of people that is supposed to be a light into the world that's supposed to uh, combat um, sin and injustice and pain and suffering and love the poor, et cetera, et cetera. And he started that church. He gives us his spirit to live within us, to guide our footsteps and our conscience and our hearts throughout our lives. He is not absent. He is very present. Even though he offers us freedom, offers us the ability to choose and control, he still structures our lives. He still gives us an opportunity to grow, even in the midst of giving us ultimate freedom. That is a loving God. That is a God I would just suggest to you, or I would at least hope you would consider a God worthy of your trust, of your love, and of your following. Practically, my hope for you, my prayer for you, parents, neighbors, friends, adults, leaders, is through the filter of love, you would ask the question, where should, where should the share of control be? In this situation, in this event in my life, where should the share of control be? Because I'm going to share it, but where and what amount should that control go? Where should it go? Who should it be given to? And looking at that question through the lens of love, I want to share control. And am I sharing it lovingly in the right place, in the right amounts, at the right time? It's a challenging thing, but if you recognize the importance of it and you take it seriously, I think we can do a better job of sharing the control and getting the share of that control right. Parents, especially keep calm. In the midst of a control battle, keep calm. Your children feed off of your emotions like a drug. Take a step back. Tell them, let me think on it if you need to. Sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, we need to do that as adults. Let me step back and let me just think about this. But don't undervalue the fact that sometimes control helps us learn by experiencing consequences. Because if your kids don't experience it young under your loving uh, uh, control and guidance, they will experience it as adults. Pick up that love and logic book. It will help you navigate this and it will better equip you for those relationships. Parenting is definitely fun, full of awesome memories, but we also need to think in terms of preparing our children for the real world of control and controlling their own lives and the consequences that come with it. And ultimately, hopefully, 
take our cues from a God who loves us and letting him into our lives to offer us forgiveness, structure, value, and guidance in our lives going forward. If you would, wherever you are, bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, First Lord, I just want to thank you for all of the moms, all of those who have taken on that role of being a mom in all the many ways that that can look beyond biological connection, but through um, adoption or through helping a neighbor or just being a friend or a teacher or fostering. Lord, thank you for those parents who sometimes take that control step with our best interests in mind. Lord, help us to get this control thing right. Help us to go to you when we need help and guidance in figuring out how the control thing looks for our lives. Guide us, nudge us. Have your spirit press upon us as we have to make some challenging decisions in our relationships, in our children's lives, extending control and bringing it back and how to navigate that well. Give us grace when we mess up, Lord, and help us to see truth when we need to correct our behaviors. Help us to navigate this challenging topic well. Lord, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your son who is an example to us. We thank you for the church and help us to be a light, especially in these times of challenge and to step in where you would step in, to love where you would love and to show that you are present. You are in control. In your name, I pray. Amen.